All right, week three, year-round disc golf podcast. I'm Scott Withers here with Justin Anderson, trying to knock out all the disc golf content that we can. Glad to have everyone back for week three. Coming off a big tournament weekend for myself, for Justin. I know both of us averaged over 10.30 for the weekend. Let's get right into it. Uh, we did a preview of Saniem Open last week. Justin, how'd it go? The Saniem Open was a lot of fun. There was definitely, uh, it was great to see everyone out there that you haven't seen in a while. And the, the weather was definitely better than most January tournaments. So we got blessed there. But it was nice to get out on a golf course where maybe the lines are a little less forgiving and being able to execute shots. And I was fortunate enough to shoot one of my highest rated rounds, the first round with a 12 under bogey free. And not really surprising that I shoot my best round and then still lose to you by two strokes for, for the first round. So that, that's always entertaining. So, but uh, tell me, tell me how your first round went. So I knew it was good, right? I started on hole one. Tournament director not warming up at all. You get to start on hole one. That's the perks because, well, you honestly don't walk out to the tee box until the two minute warning gets called. I went out there, and I'd never played the course either. Even though I set them up, I'd thrown a couple of the holes, but it wasn't. Um, I, I definitely didn't know really what to expect playing. I knew that the Bind Brewing course was the easier of the two courses, or at least I thought it was going to be. A lot of the par fours I knew were kind of soft uh, in that 600 to 650 range that if we throw a good drive, we should eat up and just have little putter-up shots for birdie. But then I got into the round, birdie hole one, part hole two, birdie three, like made a good putt on four and then part hole five. And I was just kind of going along in that front nine and it didn't feel special or anything. It didn't feel that great. And then I guess got in a rhythm because I birdied my last six holes or something. I didn't even know what scores were. I kind of knew that I was playing pretty well and I was playing this super cool card with Chris Nelson, who's one of the best young players in Oregon. He's kind of the future, I would say, the future of the state. Um, as we get a little older, I was playing with him and then John Katansky, who's a good buddy, and Kenny Shelton's a guy um, that's in his young 30s that is just kind of new to the pro field. But we had a super laid-back card, and we were just having fun. And then on 17's tee box, uh, Chris took out his phone and goes, Oh, and you and Justin are leading. And I looked at it for the first time because we were doing live scoring, which I love live scoring. It's so cool to get to look at the leaderboard and see what everyone's at. And I'm standing on 17th tee box, which is like 300 feet, pretty easy forehand. But then it's a little bit of a tough putting green because you have really a circle of trees all around the basket. And I'm thinking like, okay, well, just get this one. Like if you shoot 13, that's great. I was talking to our co-TD, Zach beforehand and he had played advanced last year so he had played the course and i asked like hey what do you think the hot round's gonna be and he's i was like do you think it's gonna be better than 10 and he's like yeah i think it'll be 12 so in my mind zach's a like great tournament director great disc golf mind doesn't play a ton anymore but he's got a good feeling for that stuff and then i was when i was sitting on 17 i was like oh if i get to 13 like that's sweet like that's a good round i know that's gonna be high rated and then i know 18's kind of a soft par four probably picked that one up too. Ended up getting both those, getting in at 14, and then watched you come in at 12. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. Like, I think everyone else was single digits, or maybe Dustin was right at 10. Uh, no, he was 9. So mm -hmm. everyone else was single digits. And I was like, yeah, I think that course played kind of the way we wanted it to, but obviously you and I both 
went out and my first round was 1072 what was yours 1054 or something like that I think I think somewhere around there Yeah so great starts to the season right if you can average over 1050 for or get a 1050 round out of your first round of 2020 like that's a pretty sweet start to the year Finishing 1050 rated round your first round is definitely an accomplishment but I felt like it took a lot of my mental energy just to be able to like focus out all the distractions during the first round and make my putt and then keep the train rolling in terms of birdies. But it was, it was a lot of fun. And it's kind of funny how, you know, we, I go out and shoot a hot round and for me, one of my hot rounds, and then I walk into the second round trailing you by two and have Dustin three behind. And it's just kind of a different kind of pressure where you know you need to execute because a bad round for you is probably what you shot second round and the bad round is still a thousand twenty right so to be to be able to catch you realistically i was gonna have to shoot thousand forty plus to be able to win the tournament with your thousand seventy three rated round yeah and there's pressure uh we knew what the payouts were you knew that first place was seven hundred dollars so if you think that for a second in our minds that doesn't play a little bit of a factor it's just wrong like i think we all do a pretty good job during the round of tuning it out if you ever think like oh i'm this putt's worth this much money or this putt's worth a hundred dollars or if i make this it's two hundred dollars or whatever it has a negative impact on the shots that you're gonna throw but you're right i mean you're being chased by dustin who's one of the region's best players and has been you know off and on for the last four or five years on tour has been contending in big tournaments and everything and then I feel like I'm very comfortable in the lead. That's where I want to be. I want to get through that first round and have a couple shot lead so I can put pressure on. So you're in kind of a weird spot because yeah, you're trying to win the tournament, but you're also trying not to get caught from anyone that's behind you. And in a two round tournament, there's no separation going into that final round. It's just a sprint for 36 holes. The the start of the second round, Dustin and I threw great drives and great approach shots. You threw probably a way better drive but a subpar approach shot and you, you hit a 35 footer back into an elevated basket for birdie. So just when Dustin and I thought we're probably going to start off hole one with getting a stroke off of you, you hit a great putt. Then the second hole, well, really Dustin just started hitting a barrage of birdie putts for the next four holes and kind of shrunk your lead down to, what was it two right away? Cause you were two down through five. So it wasn't only me feeling the pressure. Like you had to be feeling the pressure at that moment too, being five holes in. And then your lead is down to two from the guy who started in third. Yeah. And I think it was through four holes. He had back within two. And it was one of those things where it's like, all right, we're going now. Like every tournament has its own story. Every tournament has its own developments, but that was the time after hole four he made another good putt on four had just hit three or had birdied four in a row, but had got a stroke on me three straight holes when I'd had jump putts or putts on all of them. And then all of a sudden I'm only up two. And it's one of those things where I'm like, it's go time. Like you're either going to throw good shots or you're going to get caught in this front nine. And that's a lot more work than you ever want to do with some dangerous holes coming up with water, with OB and that kind of stuff. You don't want to be up less than two. And I told my girlfriend, Kaylee was walking with us. And I told her at one point, I was like, I want to be up three. I want to be up three because that's where I'm comfortable. I was like, it's hard to lose three shots in one hole, but it's really easy to lose two shots in a hole out here. So it was one of the things that after hole four, I birdied hole five. 
made a good putt on hole six, birdied hole seven, and that was kind of my good stretch on the Tiger discourse in the second round. And I didn't even get any separation. Like, I think I got one shot back on him and was up three. But then we alternated for like four or five holes. We alternated going birdie par, par, birdie, birdie, par. And you were staying basically birdieing all the ones that Dustin was birdieing in that stretch. So it wasn't like the two of us just separated. It was still a three-person battle all the way through hole 11 and 12. And there was no time at all where there wasn't pressure on every single shot. So And winning matters. Like Winning matters to me more than the money matters to me. And I just, you know, I'm competitive and you are too. And Dustin is too. And it's something that we can all be friends, but at the same time, we're all trying to win a tournament. The pressure when you're leading a tournament and someone is hot hot on your heels and you're still throwing better shots, but they're hitting the bigger putts. I mean, that's got to affect you where Dustin wasn't always throwing the best drives the first five holes, but he hit probably over 120 feet of putts in the first five holes. Uh, what is it? I mean, you, you said you had to turn the gear on. It's kind of like sink or swim at that point. Like, what do you do to dig down and, you know, kind of execute your next throw or maybe hit that big putt that you need to hit? I think a lot of it comes from experience. It comes from having put myself in the position to win or to compete for tournaments consistently for the last four or five years. And it seems like every weekend I'm in that position where there's pressure. And it's uh, there's a moment in every single round where you kind of have to dig deep and you just have to say, am I focused? Yeah, I'm focused. Like, I'm not hazy. I'm not tired. You know, I ate what I should for lunch. I think the only three of us, we talked about that last week, everyone's, you know, we provided food for everyone, but it was bar food, basically. It's hot dogs and onion rings and french fries and that kind of stuff and i think the three of us that didn't eat that were me and you and dustin and maybe a few other people but maybe it says something to who's able to sustain through the second round and everything but i got to that point in hole five or six in this round and it was kind of a gut check moment where it was like do i feel good i was like yeah i feel good like i didn't even throw drives that were that bad on two three and four i just didn't get rewarded had a really weird skip on two on a shot that skidded a hundred feet after it hit the ground on a soft golf green area. And then missed a putt on three kind of got stuck in a tree on four on a drive that wasn't good, but it definitely didn't deserve to be wedged directly under a tree where I was throwing this super high Annie forehand from like 60 feet and trying to have it hover down right next to the basket. Like it was a super weird place to end up, got up and down and it was just like, okay, you did something good let's roll. If you want to win this tournament, you're going to find out how to make some birdies here real quick because we know these courses are kind of birdie or die. Yeah, I kind of felt the same pressure from Dustin. You know, I didn't, I threw a comparable drive to him on hole two, but I threw a better drive on hole three and four. And I missed the birdie putts on holes two, three, four, and five. And the next thing I know, I am trailing to Dustin after starting with a three-stroke lead on him. So it was kind of, not only was I trying to maybe win a tournament by beating you, but the next thing I know, I was down to both of you. And it was, I think, hole six where I finally got a birdie, but I had to put it underneath the basket because my putty was start off really cold. And then it was kind of interesting where the par four, where you threw a drive maybe 100 feet past, Dustin and I 
but then we got up and down for the birdie and you got a par. That was kind of like, I felt the momentum shift, but then you just got it right back on the next hole with the only birdie on the par five on the card. Yeah. And that was hole nine that you're talking about. And that was maybe the farthest flat ground shot I've thrown in a long time. That was, uh, you know, it was a cloud breaker that I've been throwing quite a bit. And for some reason it just exploded off my hand and we're walking up the fairway and I know the conversation, I, I could hear everyone talking. And the, the question was, was it 150 feet past everyone? And I was getting a little bit of Brian, who we were playing with, who's not maybe normally on lead cards, but he played really well in the first round, was super pumped up, kind of just in awe about how far it maybe went. And I took my focus off what I was doing for a second because you were almost like, I was almost proud of how far it went. And then <laughs> I realized real quick, like, oh, it doesn't matter how far you throw. Right, I yanked the heck out of my second shot, hit a tree branch. It wasn't in play. I wasn't annoyed at all during the tournament about how I played, but I was I was close to being annoyed with myself at that point when you guys had all been so far back where you were throwing like hard fairway drivers, and I had my P2 out. I was throwing a putter. I took my rangefinder out and it was 200 feet from the basket. I mean, the drive must have went 525 or 550 in wet conditions in January on a hole that's huge and it's kind of a tough birdie. And then to mess up the upshot, that's when it was like, okay, well now you're only up two again. So it's time to go. And then, yeah, played the par five, got the birdie on that, um, which is an incredible golf hole that that hole's so sweet. You got to throw four good shots to get a birdie. We walk over to 12, which was a new hole tunnel shot. I threw first, tried to throw a little flex forehand and looks, it looked like to me, since you guys had never seen the hole that, I kind of gave everyone an idea on what line to throw, even though I had never thrown that flex forehand before. And I just walked up to it and I was like, this has to be the play. And I threw it, hit the car path on a skip, ended up 70 feet out in the field, didn't really have a putt. And then all three of you guys birdie it. Next thing I know, I'm two up again. And then we're going into 13, which is a 250 foot hole. But there's a giant pond in between the tee box and the basket. And you know, if you throw it in that pond, it's a bogey. Yeah, RIP to my MD5 in the middle of that pond. <laughs> I kind of felt like, you know, after the par five, you got the birdie. And then the next hole, we all got that birdie back. And at that point, I was only two down. And if I, you know, there was holes where I could pull a couple strokes out or at least one stroke. And then I, I throw a forehand thinking that's my most consistent play. And then I'm the only one on the car to throw into the water and take the bogue when you guys all take the bird. So that was definitely a momentum killer for me at that point in the tournament. You're going to need the flooding to go down a little bit to get that MD5 back. That was not maybe, it was definitely not what you were looking for. A little bit of wrist roll with the pressure, you know, trying to maybe get a little cuter than you need to, even though backhand putter shots aren't your most comfortable thing. It kind of set up for it on that hole. I was a little nervous about mine standing over it and being like, man, Dustin basically just threw this right next to the basket. He got to tee off before me. I knew you had went in the water. And at that point, I'm like, okay, we only have four holes to go. It's essentially a two-person race after you had thrown in the water. And then thankfully, I was able to step up and throw my star stud right next to the basket, tap in, move on. And I knew at that point that um, the holes that we had left, there was two par threes in hole 14 and 16 that aren't birdie holes. I knew they were too long. It takes a really special shot to get a birdie on either of those. So I'm thinking like, okay, those are both par holes. I'm two shots up, which means hole 15, which is another 200-foot island hole. 
that was the most important hole that we had left. And Dustin steps up first, didn't throw a very good drive, hit a tree, thankfully stayed in the island. And then my thought process is, okay, he's 40 feet away. If I throw this next to the basket, this tournament's over. And was able to step up and threw my gator right next to the pole, like three feet from the pole. But then we're walking up to the island and Dustin steps up and bangs his 40-footer. I'm like, man, he is on fire with this putter this round. And that's why the pressure stayed on. That's why he shot 12 down in the round because he essentially hit everything he looked at with the putter. Dustin just moving over to Dismania, he really hasn't had a lot of time to practice with his new putters, but he's dialed in. And it definitely has an impact where, you know, you keep throwing a better drive than someone and they just keep stepping up and hitting those long putts. And then you're staring down your 25-footer or 20-footer even. even When the pressure's on, a 20-footer with a little bit of wind is a hard putt during a tournament. Yeah, and he just kept hitting 30-footers or 35-footers which is all the credit in the world to him. He practices putting a ton, runs a couple different putting leagues. So I know that it's an important part of his game, and he seems real comfortable with those links in his hand that he picked up and started using a month ago or whatever. It's always weird when you have to basically start over with a new bag and find new plastic, but he really made that transition pretty fast. Yeah, so we go into 16, everyone pars it. I actually had to hit a pretty good... 30-footer for par after my approach shot hit a big rock that's on the entrance to the green, basically, and stopped dead. Had to make that clutch 30-footer. That one felt really good. That was probably the best pressure putt that I threw the whole day. Knew I had to have it because I did not want to be one shot ahead. I knew, or I figured that we'd all birdie 17. It's a really easy par four. And then stepping up on 18. 18 just got so much trouble around the green with the bunker on the right. The green, which I would take a pretty bad shot to throw it on the green. The bunker would kind of get in the way first. But the cart path is only 20 feet left of the basket. And if you're short, the cart path's only like 10 feet left of the basket. And it was one of those things, like, I didn't want to be one shot ahead going into 18 because there's a real chance if you're one ahead going into 18 and Dustin were to step up first and throw it right next to the basket that I would have had to go for it. And there's a chance I throw it out of bounds and lose the tournament in regulation. I really wanted to be two shots up going into 18. 18 is definitely a good finishing hole. I know we had the drama in the past with the walk-off ace, but it definitely sets up for those two-stroke swings uh, going into the last hole. Maybe one person's down by one and puts the pressure on, just like you were saying. I know that was kind of what I was banking on before I got that bogey on 14. Was where if I if I kept you know the same birdie holes you guys did and then got to 18, I could put the pressure on with a good throw, but. Definitely a fun tournament, and I know winning a tournament that you TD is always a challenge. So congrats to you on the, on yeah, the solid thanks. play for the weekend. For sure. I was pumped. I mean, second round wasn't great. Got in at 10-27, and a lot of people are like, oh, 10-27, that sounds incredible. On a golf course setup, that is something that we've been playing for a bunch of years. 10-27 is fine. It's a good round. But in the situation where I'm battling with you, who's playing really well, I'm battling with Dustin, who played super well in that final round. Sometimes 1027 is not enough to win pro events in Oregon. Like you got to step it up a little more. So uh, a little fortunate to hold on with that second round, but I had given myself just enough of a cushion with that 1072 or 1073 round or whatever it was in round one to wrap up my second Saniem open title. And hopefully there's more to come. And this tournament just keeps getting bigger and bigger. We keep getting more and more players. I don't know how much we can really expand it without running out of daylight doing it in January, but 
I'm very thankful for the golf course. Um, very thankful for all the help I had with Mike and Don and Zach and Jared and DJ picking up baskets and anyone else that was sitting at the table, Roger, everyone that just put the work in basically to make that event as special as it could be. Yeah, and we can't forget to mention the the football games after the tournament. I know you were busy picking up baskets and closing out and payouts and everything, but a bunch of us just sat around a table and watched the 49ers like smack down the Packers. So that was that was a lot of fun too, just catching up with everyone and talking disc golf. Yeah, this was a weird year for me. Usually the Patriots are playing in the AFC Championship game, and I'm a huge Pats fan, but it took a little pressure off me that they weren't. Maybe it's the end of my Tom Brady era. We'll see. I'm sure the listeners will have some hate for me for being such a big Tom Brady fan. I don't really care. But yeah, it was it was a different experience not having a Patriots AFC Championship game or playoff game on the week of San Diego. So this time I was able to just focus on the tournament a little more and not just constantly be checking my phone and trying to pop my head in and everything. But thank you to everyone uh, that came out and played the tournament, but also a huge thank you to the people that helped um, at the table today, the people that came out. Um, Stacy Wittenberger came out and essentially by hand moved turf tee pads out to like 10 or 11 of the holes. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Like, it takes a lot of people. I think it took seven of us about five hours to go set up the day before and then tear down the night of. And we didn't even get home until, I don't know, 9 or 9.30 after we all went and got a bite to eat and stuff. So a big thank you to all my tournament staff that helped out with that. So a big part of what we just talked about was playing par fours. I want to get a little bit of your opinion on when you're in that 65 to 120 foot zone um, which we were in a lot of the par fours out there just because of the distance of them. How do you approach those shots? What are you most comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? I can't jump putt from 70 feet. Like it just, I'm not, I'm not ever going to give the disc a chance to go in from that distance. If you're standing in a field at a hundred feet, what are you comfortable with? I'll probably throw a forehand if it's available. I've been working really hard on throwing putters backhand control shots but I, I still rely on rely on the forehand what are you throwing for that shot well the md5 that i was throwing is now in the pond at sandy am so i'm currently <laughs> shopping for a new overstable mid-range i'll probably probably throw in a color glow md5 the new tactic that just came out is a good forehand approach i really haven't tried to throw it past 200 feet so i guess anything Stand still forehands with a putter shot. The tactic has been doing pretty good for just getting in the bag. I know you you have the Gator, obviously, and Innova has been nice to make some great runs for you. What uh, What's your preference on that 200, 150-foot, 100-foot approach shot? I think we're very similar in it. If I have a choice, I'm going to throw it forehand. I love the angle control that I can have with those Gators. They're so overstable. The 2018s are my favorite ones. Um, the 2019s are a little straighter. I just feel like it's something I can trust. I want to be able to throw a disc out on a little ante if it needs it or flat and know that it's going to finish to the right. There's kind of a saying with PGA Tour golfers, like really good golfers don't hit the ball straight very often because it's not their go-to shot. And I think it's pretty similar in disc golf. You have to do what's easiest and a disc doesn't naturally just go straight on its own. 
a disc wants to go to the right or to the left. So if you can play that, you don't have to be really good at everything in disc golf. You just have to be really good at a few things. And Dustin said something that I thought was super interesting the other day. He said, practice your weaknesses, but play to your strengths. So even when you're out in practice rounds, work on those things that you're not good at, but make sure you're also really working on the things that you are good at, because those are the things that you need to be comfortable clutch time of a tournament coming down to it and doing. And I think for me with approach shots, I'm always going to feel more comfortable with that gator in my hand. I can make it go left. I can make it go right. It's just upon angle of release and kind of how hard I want to throw it, how hard, how high I want to throw it. It's what I'm comfortable with. I think the the Annie forehand, just the way it lands near a basket, is kind of the reason why I rely on the Annie. The Heiser, I like to throw Heisers when a Heiser is available, but the way the Heiser can skip away and roll from a basket kind of makes me favor the Annie a little more. But piggybacking on what you said about Dustin, he was talking to me about how you know, my backhand putter shots have really improved, but I still rely on my forehand. But I kind of need to trust my backhand more, especially like hole 14, where I forced that that forehand shot that threw into the pond where everyone else in the car threw a simple putter backhand. Like I need to just be able to realize, hey, this is a putter backhand shot and not force the forehand approach shot. Yeah, sure. And I think Justin's referring to the drive on 13. Um, but yeah, that same same thought process of I worked a lot two winters ago on being able to throw Novas. And it's translated over to my P2s quite a bit. And I don't even actually have a Nova in the bag right now. But I would stand there and play catch across an indoor soccer field that I have at work with another buddy. And it was something where I was really bad at throwing putter up shots and I would get in situations on wooded courses where it would really call for that backhand up shot. And I would stand there and have no confidence in what I was doing. And I just kind of got mad at it one winter and I was like, I'm going to learn how to throw a putter. And even though it's not my most comfortable shot and it's not the one I'm going to go to down the stretch, at least now I am capable of standing and throwing a straight 130, 150 foot, putter upshot and I know what disc I want to throw it with and that's going to change for everybody like whatever you're comfortable throwing it with but it's something that you do have to work on at the same time when we're talking about going back to your bread and butter my bread and butter's I assume always going to be throwing my gators forehand hopefully in a couple of years I'll be big time like you and I can have my <laughs> own signature disc and that'll be my go-to but for now, I'm going to have to find a new one while my other one soaks in the pond. So we are going to do a brand new segment. This is something we referenced last week a little bit. Justin is going to try to stump me. This new segment is called Scotty Doesn't Know. I may not be a huge fan of the song or the movie the song came from as it just makes fun of my name the whole time. But that's all right. We're going to try a new segment here. Justin, you got some stats for me. I want to know what these questions are, and I want to see if I can answer them. And I think if I get, like, two of them right out of three, since you've had the whole internet to scour for details, you might be owing me a dinner. Oh, man. The first one's totally a gimme. <laughs> All right. We'll work on it. We'll work something out.
first question is kind of a gimme, and it just has the kind of a fun question between me and you. And I think you're going to answer this one, no problem. But I I have beat you at two sanctioned events in the five years we've been playing together. Can you name those two events? You beat me at last year's Kalapuya Classic, and you beat me mm-hmm. at the 2018 Pac West Classic. Yeah, I figured those would that would be an easy question. That's why dinner. We'll have to work something out. I don't. Right, so, I don't yeah. forget. I don't forget when I lose. Those yeah, those ones sting. True. Those ones sting. Yeah. I hey, for what it's worth, if you remember at Pack West, you were like nine shots ahead of me going into the final nine, and I tried to catch up, and then ran. I ran out of holes essentially, kind of like what I did at Oregon State Championships this year with Ryan. I waited way too long to turn it on. Um, I remember that tournament because at the end of the first round, I got stung in the ankle by a bee, and my ankle was like twice the size it should have been and then i shot like a 960 round or something in the second round i went like 1060 960 on the first day or something ridiculous and you came out super hot in the second and third rounds and built a big lead and then ended up holding justin jores off in the playoff at pack west yeah playing together for five years and my only two victories over you and i won both tournaments so that kind of shows, uh, you know, anytime you're not winning a tournament, you're probably close to winning. Right, I, I so would have guessed. I would have guessed that it was more than two, but yeah, I'll I'll take that one. Yeah, well, those I said sanctioned, not unsanctioned. Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah, and the next question leads to kind of how everyone has been talking to you about maybe possibly going on the road and weighing the options of. You know, is it feasible? And I was just curious if judging strictly off of uh, tournaments played and current ratings, how much money do you think you would have won if you would have played full time on tour 27 tournaments? Oh, man. Uh, Shoot. That's a good question. I think I made just over 14,000 this year playing Northwest events and five or six major events. When I played mm-hmm. Vegas Memorial masters cup, Portland open Beaver state fling USDGC. Um, th- so I think what was that was six of the big tournaments and I made yeah. 14,000 doing that. So you're saying if I average 1038 for the whole year, how much money would I have made? I'm going to yeah. say, I'm going to say $24,200. Wrong. Ah, damn it. Was I close? Yeah. You were off by 10000 Really? More than ten. Yeah. How much would it have been? 37000 and some change. Dang. Yeah. That that's makes a, you think, right? That surprises me. Yeah, for sure. And some of it's how comfortable I am playing around here and knowing the courses and that kind of stuff. But I mean, if I ever went on the road, if I ever had that option, then maybe I would get comfortable in those settings too. But yeah, I, w- I would not have guessed that it was over 35,000. That's that's great question. And you absolutely proved that Scotty doesn't know on that one. The third one, this was a question somebody asked me. Avery Jenkins asked me this at the 2018 Worlds. 
And he actually asked a bunch of people that night, and I was the only person to get it right. So I have to bring it here to see if you can get it right. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. So from years 2000 to 2019, there have been 10 men MPO world champions. Okay. Can you name the five winners who only won one world title in that time? Uh, I can try. Avery Jenkins. Eric McCabe. Greg Barsby. Oh, boy. Um, you're going to give me a second on this one. Okay, so Climo, Schultz. Schultz have a world? Yeah, mm-hmm. Schultz multiple. has a world. Yeah. Does he have multiple after 2000? I think he has two. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, all right, so Climo, Schultz. Feldberg only have one? Yep, that's number four. That's number four. Um, and, man. I could be totally going out on a limb here, but I feel like Cam Todd. Oh. No. <laughs> no? Yeah, you got you got it. Yeah. <laughs> those, are, those are the five. Those are, it took me a little bit, but... Yeah, yeah I, I thought that Cam had one, but I wasn't positive. And I know it was early in the 2000s. Um, and it was just one of those things, like, maybe even before I was playing disc golf. But I know a little bit about the history of world champions and stuff. So there's 10 people that have had worlds. So Macbeth, yeah. Wysocki, Climo, Schultz, and who's the other? Who, who am I missing? Doss. Doss, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I forget about Doss because he lives two hours from me and doesn't play anymore so nope. yeah that's that's quite the crew and some surprising ones and they're also if you talk about just the number of overall like major events one with cam and then avery's got his share of wins but not a lot of them were huge events you know and then seeing greg get it two years ago was awesome i mean greg's everyone's favorite and someone that i've played with for maybe eight or nine years now so some of those guys that are picking some up, um, it shows that if we go out there and have a good weekend, you never know what will happen. Yeah, and that was another stat I was trying to look up. If if you averaged, I think your best tournament last year was, what, like 1,065 rated? Yeah, I don't know. Was that Farragut? It was, it was close. I was trying to find stats, and if you played your best tournament, what tournament you would have won, and what t- tournament you would finish top five in, but that was just too much time. So maybe another <laughs> time we'll have something cool like that. Um, all right. Well, let's let's move out of that segment. We'll move into one more topic for uh, for this week. What's coming up? What do you have next? I know that with this San Diego Open being done, things are going to cool down again a little bit as it's really the only major thing we're playing in January. But what's on your calendar? This weekend, I have an unsanctioned tournament at the Rose City Golf Course in Portland. Um, if anyone's not doing anything on Sunday, you should definitely sign up. It's not full, but the Rose City Golf Course is definitely an up-and-coming course in the Portland area, and they're definitely trying to show to the golf course itself that this golf can be sustained there and definitely be part of the course, so people should come out and show some support. 
And then next sanctioned tournament, is that Vegas? I was thinking about going down to Grants Pass and joining the Sal's party. So I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think that's my next play. You don't want to come down to the Sal's party. You know who runs that. Oh, yeah. I definitely you're not, want some of that. You're not coming down to my territory and sneaking a win out of there. I'll give him my best. <laughs> <laughs> and then Vegas, obviously. And then the week we come back from Vegas, are you playing um, the tournament that Anthony Hammerschmidt's running? What is that, the Pioneer yep. Open? Yep, I'll be there. Definitely looking forward to that. And I've been talking to my wife about planning a Europe trip. And next, uh, the first week of February, the European Open signups open up. So if I play my cards right, I can definitely talk my wife into wanting to go on a little European trip and checking out Finland and maybe somewhere else. You're one lucky man. That's like the same time as the Beaver State Fling and Portland Open and just after that this year. So it'll be interesting to see after Worlds who goes to Europe and who stays in the Northwest. Maybe they all can go and I'll just be the only one that plays the Fling and I can pick up a big win. Not that I want my first NT or anything to be a half-field event, but hey, take them where you can get them. Yeah, there's definitely a string of, of tournaments in Europe where the top pros might be over there just because of, I mean, kind of endorsements and the the payouts in the European tournaments and just being over there definitely draws big crowds. So it might, we might actually have a chance here and at the Beaver State this year. <laughs> yeah, I think my schedule looks pretty similar to yours. I'm playing Festivus at Adair this weekend. I'm actually skipping a Sows tournament for the first time. Um, because it's in Ashland and I signed up for Festivus not knowing that it was this weekend. It's usually the Saturday before the Super Bowl. Confused myself, signed up for it, and then my travel buddy Justin George wasn't going to be able to go down to Ashland, and I was like, it's a a four-and-a-half-hour drive for a non-sanctioned event by myself. The course is so epic. It's on an emptied-out lake bed that's got so many cool elevation shots and stuff down there at Immigrant Lake, but it's a little far of a drive, and I'd already paid for Festivus up here, and... I'll stay 15 minutes from my house and hopefully take down another Festivus title and kind of have a relaxing weekend around home, play a couple more Sal's events. But then we just got an email today from the tournament director in Vegas. It's like one month from now, we'll be in Vegas sitting either at our Airbnb or maybe at a casino or something with the tournament started already. One month away from being in Vegas. I know the work schedule has been grueling lately and just, being able to count down the days where, you know, having some time off in Vegas and not really have to worry about anything back home, but just hanging out with some friends and throwing Frisbees and trying not to lose money when I gamble. So definitely looking forward to Vegas. I'm also ready to get to Vegas to just get out of this Oregon winter. I feel like every single day in the Valley for us has been gray, overcast, wet. Even the days that it's not raining, it's still soaked from raining the night before. Or whatever. I'm ready to get into some dry areas or to a dry place and just play golf where you don't need six towels in your bag and an umbrella. Yeah, hopefully you didn't just jinx Vegas, but the weather here in Oregon has been <laughs> dismal. And I definitely want to get somewhere where I can wear a t shirt and play some disc golf. Yeah, me too, buddy. Uh, let's wrap it up on that. Um, week three of the Year Round Disc Golf podcast. I know that I want to give one little shameless plug before 
we get out of here. If you guys have checked out Flight Towel before, they just released a signature uh, towel, basically, for me. I'll throw a little picture of it up there. You can check the social media. I'll have to take a screenshot or whatever. But a significant portion of the proceeds go to kind of help my travel and my tour efforts. I'm really lucky to uh, have a couple companies behind me that want to help out and want to use my name and everything to also help their business because that's what it's about. But, you know, very thankful to have the team behind me that I do between Innova and Pound and now Flight Tal and some other things that are coming up that I'll be announcing in the next month or so. But just a big thank you to everyone that does stand behind kind of the disc golf journey that I've had that I like to call it. So just thank you big time for those of you that have stood beside me these last few years. I definitely want to shout out a big thank you to Amy Lewis at Heiser Dyes. I know she's definitely done some great work for you. But if anybody's looking to add some character to some plastic that has a boring stamp, or maybe you just want, uh, for me, I I had her dye Harry Potter and Star Wars uh, good luck charms on my discs, and definitely, definitely add some character to your bag, and it's it's fun. So if you want some dyes on your disc, hit up Amy Lewis at Heiser Dyes. Amy and uh, her boyfriend, Mo, great friends of mine. Also, she does incredible work. I've got a few discs that are on the wall up here of hers that are almost too pretty for me to put in my bag. So they sit up on the wall and can be something cool instead of uh, necessarily getting thrown all the time because she does work that's too good for me to put in my bag. So uh, thank you to them. And we'll wrap it up. We'll talk to you guys next week. I definitely want to shout out a big thank you to Amy Lewis at Heiser Dyes. I know she's definitely done some great work for you. But if anybody's looking to add some character to some plastic that has a boring stamp, or maybe you just want, uh, for me, I, I had her dye Harry Potter and Star Wars uh, good luck charms on my discs. And definitely, definitely add some character to your bag. And it's it's fun. So if you want some dyes on your disc, hit up Amy Lewis at Heiser Dyes. Amy and uh, her boyfriend, Mo, great friends of mine. Also, she does incredible work. I've got a few discs that are on the wall up here of hers that are almost too pretty for me to put in my bag. So they sit up on the wall and can be something cool instead of uh, necessarily getting thrown all the time because she does work that's too good for me to put in my bag. So uh, thank you to them. And we'll wrap it up. We'll talk to you guys next week. Cool.